Well, hello everyone. My name is uh, Mike. I'm a pastor and I'm uh, doing a doctor of ministry uh, for which I've asked several people to kind of critique a project I'm working on. Uh, it's a paper called uh, Christian Epistemic Models and Sola Scriptura. Uh, the paper is available at uh, bit.ly, bit.ly dash Sola Scriptura Manifesto, if anybody wants to download it and follow along as we talk. Uh, so I'm here with Ambrose. He's agreed to help me out. So I'm going to ask him to introduce himself a little bit and then uh, we can get started. Yeah, so I'm really happy to be here with you, Mike, and uh, to help you with this project. And I'm very interested in the subject. I am uh, currently a PhD candidate at McMaster Divinity College in Hamilton, Ontario. And my PhD will technically be called a PhD in Christian theology. Mm -hmm. But my specialization is in Old Testament theology in particular and kind of biblical theology more broadly. So I'm doing a bit of New Testament work as well. And yeah, so I'm very interested in, in the topic of uh, sort of theological method and sort of theological frameworks and all the things that you're talking about in uh, in your work so Perfect. i was really happy to get the chance to work with you on it i was just thinking you know uh i don't know if you noticed oh it's on the screen here as well my middle it shows up as my middle name but it's actually my first name is cyprian so we're basically two saints here having a conversation <laughs> sounds good yeah i actually so sorry that's that's actually your first name is cyprian cyprian is my first name but it's hard to pronounce for most people so i just go by mike yeah i got gotcha. you yeah and it's uh it's off by a, a a Y instead of an I there. Otherwise, we would both have the exact names of the saints. So. Yeah. Right. So yeah, whatever, okay. whatever yeah. Path you want to take through the paper. Okay. So first of all, I guess um, a question I would have for you, or just like my initial kind of uh, reaction. Let me do that. Let me just kind of give you my initial sort of reaction to sure. the whole thing. Uh, and then I'll, I'll tell you maybe a question that I have um, in particular that uh, you can address. Um, so first of all, I thought it was really interesting. I, I really enjoyed the layout of it. I enjoyed kind of the historical background that you developed and um, just the way you kind of like described what it was that you were doing and like put it within the kind of trajectories of Christian theology, historically speaking. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought that was really helpful and I found it kind of just interesting. A lot of it's familiar to me, but it was just kind of good summary as well. Um, and I, what I really enjoyed was that you're really attempting to kind of rescue something that has been um, a, really the mainstay, especially of Protestant um, theology for a long time. And yet, as you point out, has had many difficulties and, and sort of in many circles, especially kind of more critical theological circles, yeah. has really just been abandoned as a hopeless sort of cause. And so I, I as I, my, myself, I'm an evangelical Christian. And so like, I just appreciated um, that you're trying to take seriously the problems that Sola Scriptura has had and, and actually try to find some way forward that would allow us to, to pursue that with some kind of authenticity. And, um, but still that's kind of methodologically rigorous and responsible, I guess you could say. So, so yeah, I thought it was really great. Um, in that respect. And, and I think there's some promise to it as well. I think the, the avenues that you're exploring uh, certainly, I think, are, are pushing on the right kinds of questions and looking for some, some good answers to those questions. So, um, so yeah, I thought it was you know, overall really great in that respect. But here's kind of the first question I have that sure. maybe you could speak to mm -hmm. is, nowhere in that paper did you ever say what you actually think theology is 
okay. or why or why it is that we're doing it in the first place. <laughs> yeah, it's a that's one of those questions that it's so in your face that you don't think about, you know. Um, so I think somebody reading my paper would probably notice this from reading the paper, but um, I look at theology as kind of a theory of everything. Um, and I use, the, I use the phrase theology philosophy because you could have a theory of everything that qualifies as theology or a theory of everything that qualifies more of a, a philosophy. Like for example, Buddhism might be more of a philosophy, but it's still like a theory of your entire picture of what reality is about, you know? And you could be an atheist, but you have a picture of how you view all of reality. Um, so, you know, we have all this mental constructs of what reality might be like, and we have pathways that we use to arrive at those constructs. And some of those pathways are uh, a more serious intellectual endeavor, and some of them are just haphazard, where people just say, well, I, I'll, I'll, kind of like a, like a potluck, where you pick a dish from here and a dish yeah. from there. A lot of people's philosophies these days are just all over the place. And I think part of the task of theologians and philosophers is to, to think carefully about how they reason through their, their process and, and that there's some kind of consistency from where you start and where you end up. And other people can look at your premises and follow along and say, yeah, I could see where they're coming from and where they're going with this. Uh, I don't know if that answers your questions, but that's kind of how I think about this. Uh, so kind of more like a, a comprehensive worldview. Exactly. Exactly. As opposed to just some kind of subset of something within and, a broader... And, and I'm not saying working on a sub subset is not a legitimate pursuit, but ultimately we live our lives within a comprehensive worldview, you know, or at least we try to. And sometimes, especially more recently with scholarship, we've sort of uh, zeroed in on things and forget that eventually we still have to believe something in order to just function, you know, and go about our life every day. Gotcha. Yeah so. yeah, so I guess my other question was then, like, why, um, well, I guess that kind of answers both of my questions, actually, as I'm thinking about it. Um, okay, so then I guess another point that I kind of noticed in the um, paper, because I feel like what you're trying to do is something that, I mean, as you point out, it's, it's an open uh, problem, you could say, mm -hmm. okay? So it's yeah. not, we haven't, I don't think, come up with a satisfactory solution per se. However, it's not a problem that's been ignored either. And mm -hmm. so I just wonder, like, if how familiar you are with the whole biblical theology movement and what you think, if you think that movement would have anything to offer to the kind of effort that you're making. Because I think they were trying to kind of deal with the same question, but in some ways, their claim was, was, or their assumption more was that they were going to develop a biblical theology that would serve as some kind of a basis for systematic theology. Mm -hmm. But I think what you're doing kind of feels a bit more like biblical theology to me, especially with your emphasis on like use, using the biblical data to actually arrive at what you call the metaphysics, right? Like that, that you are getting the whole package from the Bible, that it's, yeah. that it's really sola scriptura. It's not you know, a scripture as a final authority or something, but that the entire picture is somehow coming from, from the Bible, including, like you say, the metaphysics. So I feel like to some extent, at least some versions of biblical theology have been trying to do that. They're trying yeah. to give some kind of an account of biblical religion uh, that would 
be kind of internal to the Bible and, and, uh, and then provide that as some kind of a base for systematic theology. And do you think, and this will kind of get back to my other question too, in terms of why are we doing theology in the first place? Do you think that there's some kind of like value to making that distinction? And do, do you know of anything or do you like, what's your thought about some of the biblical theology that's taken place? And do you think it's effective for what you're trying to do? Um, so I'm, I'm someone that kind of knows a little bit about a lot of stuff, but not a lot about specific things, you know, yeah. so because I'm, I've tried to kind of step back and get a, a big picture view of the whole thing. Like, I mean, there's so many disciplines, you know, I mean, even within just theology, you're dealing with like hermeneutics, you're dealing with languages, you're dealing with philosophy, you're, you know, there's dozens and dozens of disciplines, but then you step back and you have an entire world of, you know, physics, biology, ge geology, yeah. genetics, and, and so on. It just, it's, it's endless, really. And it's hard to kind of wrap your mind around everything. Uh, but I've tried to kind of step back and see the interaction of all these elements and how they, they play together. Um, I'm not trying to say I'm doing anything original, but I don't hear other people talking about things the way I'm talking about them. And I feel like it's helpful to approach it this way. Like, for example, categorizing theology by epistemology um, is kind of helpful in the same way categorizing biology via genetics is helpful. You know, organizing yeah. living things by, by genetics is helpful because you're connecting the source of the diversity to the yeah to the final conclusion and stuff yeah um and then even evaluating things like um you know we this this past 200 years or so we've given a lot of preeminence to the scientific method and have kind of worked hard to adjust our theology to science which i think it's it's not a bad thing like i think science deserves our respect because he has accomplished quite a bit. But I don't think we spend enough time evaluating the limitations of science properly. And I think it's out of fear because it seems every time people um, try to control the scientific process, we end up making mistakes that we end up paying for later. Like we right. bring assumptions to the table and then we realize those assumptions are bad and, and we hurt ourselves by it. And yet there's still something there to be figured out. So I, I guess I don't think I'm answering your question, but that's kind of, the, I've come at it from like this big picture view where I've tried to bring all the different elements together and organize them a certain way that I haven't seen other people organize everything in. And I, I think it's helpful to do it this way. Yeah. But who knows, maybe maybe there's better ways to do it. I don't know. No, I think I, I agree with you that it's what you're doing is not quite exactly what's out there really widespread. The reason I bring up biblical theology, though, I'm just I'm seeing an affinity with yeah. what you're doing. And so it might be worthwhile to do a bit of reading in that area just to kind of get a little more kind of insight as to the kinds, especially when you're thinking about things like like you've got the um, I can't remember if you used the word meta narrative or not, but the the right. whole paradigm of the cosmic conflict. Yeah. Um, and so, which I think is great. And I think you illustrate the utility of that, of, mm -hmm. of being able to identify something like that, that kind of gives you the whole Bible view that then everything can, can fit within and make sense of. Um, it's just that within the kind of like research and writing on biblical theology, 
there's many other options, right? Yeah. And so th there could be other things that you might find equally um, helpful or just like the general premise of putting together that kind of a paradigm. Uh, you could find more support for it, I think. But I think what you're doing is more, the sense I get anyways from reading it is that it's, it's more... It's more oriented towards kind of the traditional goals of systematic theology. And, and so even though you're kind of doing, you know, methodologically, you're doing something that I think is very similar to what biblical theologians in the past have tried to do, you're, you're not just doing it as like a precursor to systematic theology. You're actually trying to make, make a systematic theological framework that's really rooted in the Bible without using, just using the Bible, without having to have some intermediate step, like to get between the two, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, so I think yeah. that's a bit different for sure. Yeah, I think you could do biblical theology from multiple epistemic frameworks. So, you know, you might come from the traditional yeah, Protestant framework, you might come from a fundamentalist framework and still do biblical theology, but you're making different assumptions. And sometimes we kind of, um, overlap all these different approaches because they're all under the label biblical theology without considering the presuppositions they're each working with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're definitely, I think, more interested in the epistemological foundations and how that creates the different kinds of theology that we have. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, don't, I, I think there's overlap between what I'm saying and, and uh, some of these disciplines, um, but there's also some differences there. Yeah. Um, one thing I was interested in your, when you were kind of laying out the different, uh, you kind of had that like line of different sorts of, I guess you could say, um, ways of doing theology. And you had, you had there the, the line for like the threshold of sola scriptura and you yeah. had atheism on the one end and, and fundamentalism on the other end. And then you kind of had the other stuff in between Protestant, Catholic, liberal theology, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering what, uh, where would you locate on there, if you've read, know much about him, a guy like Paul Tillich, because I think he gets lumped in with liberal theology, but I think mm -hmm. if you really read him carefully and understand what it was he was trying to do, it's not really liberal theology, but it's also not neo-orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. He's decidedly against that. Yeah, I, uh, I have a hard time with, with people like that. And I guess one of the reasons I chose the categories I did is based on just how common ideas are. You know, and I could be wrong, but in my experience, I run into this specific groups a lot more than I run into like anomalies, you know, uh, right. for example. Uh, I think it depends also how you define the groups, uh, because it could be that like essentially like what I, the way I understand uh, new orthodoxy is kind of like a bridge between the liberal perspective and the traditional perspective, uh, because by centering on Christ, they were able to, to bring elements over from traditional Christianity that liberal Christianity kind of lost or didn't have a logical way to hold on to them. Uh, but they were also able to hold on to things like biblical scholarship, critical scholarship and all these things at the same time. So they were able yeah. to kind of merge the two. And I think, I think Tillich also does that, but I think he uses a different center. And I don't know enough about him to, to fully understand how it works, but it could still be labeled as this kind of in-between model. Um, right that bridges the two but it maybe does it differently than somebody like Barth. right yeah well definitely an in-between model that's a fine way to describe it because he um 
well, I think, what did he actually call his autobiography in which he kind of tells his life story sort of, but also with an eye towards his theological development and so forth. I think, I forget the title of it, but it's something about, I think it's on the boundary, on the boundary. Mm -hmm. And that's really his whole kind of MO is that he's, he's sort of between the different things on a whole host of kind of issues. I think it's just interesting. Um, I think what he kind of raises, though, that's interesting that some of these other approaches don't, because you're right, I think he's more of an anomaly, and most people just lump him into liberal theology and move mm-hmm. on with their lives. And in some ways, that's okay, because he's, I mean, it just depends how you're dividing up your categories, right? But, yeah. but um, I can certainly see that. But um, he is more of an anomaly. But I think the thing that he kind of raises that I think is very interesting is the whole question of the relationship between theology and culture. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's something that's really missing in yours. Now, I know you're, you're like very focused on epistemology and that kind of thing. But this kind of gets at my the first question I asked about, like, why are we doing theology in the first place? It seems to me that whatever theology is, it has to be articulated, mm-hmm. which means now you're operating within some kind of a culture. And I, and I just feel like there's a missing piece. If you're going to try to do a fully sola scriptura theology the way that you're doing it, you might just be hiding inside the Bible then. How do you get out of the Bible into the actual culture that you're sitting in in order to articulate what you've discovered by being isolated inside the text, you know? Um, I, I, I have a way in my head. I don't know if it would work once I articulate it for other people to critique, but um, I mean, as a, as a pastor, I've worked with tons of people from many different cultures and I've never really had an issue with communicating ideas across because I start by listening and I try to understand how they reason and where they're coming from. And then I try to explain what I'm trying to say in a way that makes sense to them. So I think there's a way of doing that. Um, You know, you have to be pretty specific, I guess, like you could say, okay, here's this this uh, framework or this mindset that this particular people group have, how would you present your theology to this group? And then we can think through that and um, and, and kind of come up with an approach. <clears throat> uh, a lot of times, some perspectives are so different that you actually would have to do for them what I'm trying to do for the Christian perspective, where you kind of dissect it down to the bottom level Sorry, someone's. No, no problem. Take, take apparently, apparently they're having a fire drill in this building that I'm in right now. I don't have to leave, but there might be an an alarm going off. So, sorry, go ahead. No problem. Yeah. So, um, so you know, for example, I, I thought about working in a in a Hindu context uh, to really be able to communicate to that culture. Like, you have to take the time. To, to go through their entire philosophical system to the bottom level and understand the same metaphysical foundations that they have and how they build their system from there the way we do with our theology. And I think once you do that, you'll be able to at least have some basis of communication because a lot of times we say things and to them, it means something very different than what we mean when we say it. Right. So there's this breaking communication. So again, I don't know if that's answering your question or not, but yeah, it certainly is starting to get at it. I think the, the reason why I bring this up is because, I mean, you you definitely critique sort of like the Greek philosophical paradigm that stands behind the church fathers and that sort of thing. 
And I, I like that because I'm an Old Testament guy. And so I'm always very suspicious of all these Greek categories <laughs> that yeah. they came up with and stuff. Um, but on the other hand, I would actually see those um, like philosophical paradigms, like right down to the level of the base epistemology and the initial like starting assumptions that people are making mm -hmm. that ground their worldview. Um, like that's what a culture consists in fundamentally. Yeah. And so then I sit here and I go, okay, so if the way the church fathers have articulated things is borrowing church, uh, I don't know if you can hear that. <laughs> I had no idea. This is my church building and they have a daycare in here. I okay. never knew they were going to run a fire drill today. It's, it's not loud enough to be annoying. So I think well, that's good. Um, anyways, so I, I guess my, my point was if if what they have done has has taken Greek philosophy or something like that and imposed it on the Bible, say, okay, but if you were going to communicate, if you're going to go the other way, though, and, mm -hmm. and say, what is it that the Bible actually teaches, but you have to do it in their worldview, which means you have to use their philosophical framework in order to articulate what the Bible actually is saying, then... I think you would come out with something maybe different than what you would by going the other way and starting with the philosophy and imposing that on scripture. But you might still come out with something that looks very Greek, you know, and, and doesn't necessarily look like what you articulated in your paper about, um, you know, the cosmic conflict and all that stuff. Well, I mean, as long as people are able to understand that there's different um metaphysical perspectives and we're operating within different you know kind of big picture worldview and so on um you could explain to people okay this is how you see things this is your worldview this is the assumptions you're making and this is how i see it you don't have to agree with me but this is kind of the reasons why we come to these conclusions um yeah i, I mean I don't know if that's necessarily worse than trying to uh, reframe your entire belief system within their within their paradigm, because I'm not sure if you're even communicating your system across. I mean, like we look at Christianity today, and and some of the essential elements are extremely different. I mean, even basics like within early Protestantism, you have the Calvinists and the Armenians. The core element, which is the gospel, which is the major thing that the Protestants build their whole thing around, and yet they had this massive disagreement that was metaphysical in nature, you know? Yeah. It's not the same thing. I mean, I don't know. So. Yeah, no, I, I definitely see what you're saying. I think that's, that's partly why, that was one of the things I should say that Paul Tillich gets criticized for, because he wants to enmesh theology within the culture at such a deep level mm -hmm. that it becomes unrecognizable as Christian yeah. to most people's sensibilities, because most people, I mean, he has, I think he has a very high view of scripture actually, but, but, um, but the way it comes out, it's like, you know, it just sounds like something so foreign to the Bible because the Bible's from a totally different worldview. Yeah. And so, so that's kind of one of the criticisms, but on the other hand, I do think, he's onto something in the sense that he talks about how theology is actually part of the creation of culture. And so 
in that sense, you're stuck in a kind of a circle all the time because you can't do theology without doing it in a culture. But as soon as you do it, you've now changed that culture because you've said something that was not said before, even though you said it within the paradigm of that particular culture. And so you're always creating culture while you're doing theology. And I think maybe that would address some of what you're saying in the sense of, um, I just want to get my points across and have people understand it. And if I have to adapt that to their culture, then that's what I'll do so that I know they're understanding what it is that I'm actually trying to say and, and they're, they're hearing me. Um, but I think by doing that, by doing theology that way, then you're actually transforming their culture because you're adding something to their discourse that is like native to their culture and yet is coming from the Bible in, in the case of how you're doing it so that it has a kind of uh, an effect on it that, that, you know, on their culture, right? So that it's not just it's not just appropriating the Bible to their culture, but it's actually has a, having a transforming effect, but still staying like within it. And I think that's actually, to me, that's really important. I think at, at its base, that's the essence of Christian theology. And that's why it's been so successful as a global religion, because it becomes indigenous so quickly in all of the places where it has spread. And I think that part of it is because of the kind of way that the gospel is able to be re-expressed in cultural terms that make it kind of indigenous to a culture and yet sort of recreate the culture in the process, you know? Yeah, so um, I know what you're saying. I mean, I've, I've kind of come across this, this questions in the past. Uh, and I think one of the things that my approach can offer to this is to say, well, hey, if that's that's the angle you're coming from, that's fine. But that doesn't prevent us from being able to um, recognize that there's different models and evaluate them and, and and try to like be able to communicate across from one model to the other. Now that we understand where we're at, um, and I think different people will probably have different approaches. And you know, maybe if this model is the correct one, then hey, great. It's, it's available, it's there, and it, you know, it has a chance to do its thing. Well, if this other model might be the better one, it's also available and it's able to, you know, people are working with it and they're able to go out there and try to communicate their message across. Um, so I guess my approach was to, to think, because we're kind of dealing with these things from an academic perspective, um, and a lot of times, uh, academia has had certain standards that have kind of restricted theological development to some degree. Um, and um, I think we need to have a conversation in Christian academia where we, where we say, look, there's multiple models. We don't have a way to dismiss all of them except one and just say, everybody come to the agreement that this is the only one that's, that's working. So let's make peace with that, figure out what the acceptable models are and come up with some criteria and say, okay, these are the standards by which we decide what models work and what models don't. And then anybody that has some idea, they can come and present it and see if it falls within those parameters. Uh, but I'm not aware of anybody having put together anything like this. And I don't know how easy it is to do it without causing a major stir, but. <laughs> yeah. I do, no, I mean, I, I, I agree with you that, that the way you're trying to approach it in terms of what I just said about the essence of Christian theology, it's probably the best one in the sense that um, 
it's it's trying to make the what's in the Bible come alive in some culture. Whereas the other models, you could communicate across cultures or whatever, uh, or within your own culture. But in order to do that, you're actually kind of like, I don't know, it feels more colonial in a way, because now you're taking Greek philosophy and I've got to somehow make Greek philosophy work for a Hindu person. And yeah. It's like, uh, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's really the way Christian theology should work. So I think, I mean, I do, I do agree with you that, that trying to approach it the way you are definitely is kind of like better in that respect. And, and I, and I, I like the, the way that you've kind of like analyzed all of the different models um, so that, so that they can be like related to each other and particularly at the level of epistemology. Let, let me, let me throw this out there. Considering what you're saying, um, it seems that you're actually, if you go the traditional route, you have to go through, through multiple steps because you, you start with the, the Christian perspective, the original Christian biblical perspective, whatever it is, then you pass it through the lens of Hellenistic thought from or, or Aristotelian thought or wherever you're at in, in, in the culture, whichever tradition you're with. You pass it through that lens, and then you got to pass it through another lens where, when you're talking to a Hindu, for example. Uh, so we could actually bypass the middle lens and just go straight from the Bible to the Hindu culture. If, yeah. if you're going to do that, I mean, you're, you're, you're yeah. Yeah. cutting the middleman, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, sorry. that's what I'm saying. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I'm saying is, yeah. is beneficial about your approach is that it's it doesn't require you to try to move through so many different kind of worldviews yeah um did um did you have um any like before i ask you some questions did you have any other things you wanted to bring up um i maybe your questions will address them anyways the only other thing i wanted to ask you about was the um I, i'd be interested to talk about how you think that prophecy validates scripture okay um, because it wasn't clear to me well, it seems like what you're saying is prophecy validates the truth and authority of scripture. Yeah. But that to me, that's not the same thing as saying prophecy validates the theology that I construct from scripture. Yeah. Um, the I guess the question I was addressing there is um, how do you how do you deal with the question of authentic authentication? when you're moving away from philosophy. So, you know, you, you look at all the different theological perspectives and they spend a lot of time building a, a philosophical foundation because they work with the assumption that the Bible doesn't address certain questions. So we have to address those ourselves before we go come to biblical theology or to Christian theology directly. So there's like this space, like let's say you're talking to an atheist there's a certain amount of space you deal with in philosophy. And then once you're done with that and you bring him to theistic, a more theistic perspective and closer to us, to Christians, then you could go into the, the regular Christian theology. But if you're kind of restricting yourself to the biblical data, then the question to ask is, does the Bible address stuff like this? Does the Bible ever even concern itself with it? And I think it does. I mean, I think there's lots of situations in the Bible where people are skeptical, they're doubting, they're scared, they're confused, and God gives them reasons to believe in different ways. And, and there's many ways God does this, but I think the one that seems to be the, the least subjective and the least personal is the prophetic aspect where, you know, 
predictions are made over extended periods of time and people keep you know like when the when jesus comes he doesn't i mean there, there are miracles there is the resurrection there's all these things you know the personal experience with him but he takes the time to show them like no there's there's a thousand years of things that were predicted that i'm fulfilling right so he's he's basically relying on on the the foreknowledge of god as as a basis for for everything he's doing um so all, all i'm really saying with that is that if we're gonna do soul scriptural theology then that's a question that's another question we have to approach from a soul scriptural perspective because it's a legitimate right. question how why 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 take the bible seriously why take christianity seriously and i'm not saying all the other things don't work like we could still use philosophy you could still use some of the arguments that people use but we do need to shift our or focus a little bit in that, in that sense. But in doing that, aren't you sort of adopting a correspondence theory of truth, which isn't that philosophically prior then to... Uh, can you kind of explain what you mean by that? Well, so like in order for that to authenticate scripture, like prophecy fulfillment, mm -hmm. that presupposes a certain view of what truth consists in and reality to some extent. Because one thing I was actually thinking of, I noticed... Um, I forget which thing it was because I read the appendix too. And um, you had an example in there of, oh, I have, it's in my iPad. Just, can I go off screen for a second? I just yeah, want to yeah, go for it. So I go for remember. It. Yeah, so while uh, Ambrose is looking for, for his uh, iPad there, I uh, didn't realize it until just a couple of days ago that I had, two different versions of my paper online and one of it has had an appendix and one didn't. Everything else was the same, but one of them had this appendix and the appendix was actually a really old paper I wrote a long time ago that was there as a placeholder for what I was intending to put in the appendix. And, uh, and then I just realized that I, I didn't mean for that to be there because it wasn't at the level that I, I wanted it to be. So there's probably gonna be things in there that are I'm not going to be comfortable defending at this point, but it is what it is. That's okay. Um, yeah, I said that at the beginning of it, that this was an old paper. Yeah, there you go. I think I put a... This uh, anyways, it was helpful, though, to be honest with you, because it really did flesh out at least some of your preliminary older thoughts about yeah. what you meant by that authentication piece. Um, oh, yeah. So at a certain point, you said something about Rome was divided into the nations of Europe and has remained divided to this day in spite of numerous efforts to reunite. And you're mapping that onto the clay uh, and iron feet yeah, of yeah. the statue in Daniel. So what that immediately made me kind of think, because you said somewhere in there about how we cannot, it, you know, we have to avoid the fallacy of interpreting prophecy in such a way that it conforms to history. Mm -hmm. But what about interpreting history in such a way that it conforms to prophecy? Like that's another side of that coin. And I'm not sure historians would agree that that's the best way to characterize the end of the Western Roman Empire, that it turned into the nations of Europe. You know what I mean? Um, well, <laughs> like there's I a mean, question there. You've got to, because now you've got to basically have a hermeneutics of history. Yeah. That and that and that not you're not can't get any of that from the Bible. Like does the Bible like maybe maybe you've got to get from your biblical worldview that you're developing by trying to be sola scriptura 
if you want it to be historical like that, then you have to also somehow have a hermeneutics of history that you're also getting from the Bible. Um, yeah, that's something I'm going to need to think about a little bit because I'm, I'm not sure how a hermeneutic of history would work necessarily. I, I, I just look at it in terms of um, when you're when you're working with the with the model, you have to ask the question: How precise was this model intended to be, or this analogy, or this example or illustration? You know, if you if you buy a Hot Wheels car, are you going to be able to open the hood and see the exact connection of the engine parts and all this stuff, or you know, it's just a piece of plastic that looks like a Toyota or whatever? Um, the the prophecy has this the statute and you know if you if you just read through the thing daniel's talking about you know you're you're the head of gold there's this other whatever power that's coming after you and all this stuff so you know and there's multiple ways i understand there's multiple ways to to interpret that i think um hermonia puts all the metals right within Babylon. So it's just basically different kings of Babylon in the same, like okay, the yeah. bronze and the, and so on. But I think based on, on the story itself, it seems to fit a lot better with history. And essentially, when you look at the Roman Empire, it kind of collapsed, especially the West, it collapsed at some point and it broke up into, into the pieces. Now, you know, I, I know people that try to de decipher which exactly are the ten kingdoms, and you know, it's the Alemanni Al 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 and the whatever that became the Germans and the Franks and the Span Spaniards and so on. I don't do that because I don't think the 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 illustration was intended to be that precise. I mean, it's just a statute, and he had ten toes. You know, you're you're not going to have a, a statue with. 13 toes for about 30 <laughs> seconds representing 300 years or something and then 15 toes for the next 50 seconds or whatever. It, it, you can't do that with an illustration. But I think overall it seems to fit. So I don't know if you have a different picture of history that you think conflicts very largely with that. With that. Uh... Well, I guess, no, my, my, my point is like you, it just seems, so you're just assuming something about the relationship between modern Europe and the Roman Empire's disintegration. And like that needs, you've got to have, and maybe you're right, but the point is you have to have some hermeneutics that gave you that story, right? Because somebody else might say, well, hold on a second, half, most of Europe wasn't even part of the Roman Empire. Like, what about all those guys and how does that fit into it? And so like, yeah, I mean, Rome kind of breaks up, but to trace that to today being like, there's still all of these sort of like pieces of Rome that were hanging around and you talk about how they're held together sort of, you know, loosely by the Catholic church or something through most of, you know, the medieval period and so forth. I mean, and that's all fine. I'm not necessarily saying that you're wrong about that, but somehow you arrived at that particular picture of history. And so that's a different question. How do you, how do you tell the story of history? And maybe you're just telling it in such a way that it just looks so much like the prophecy and isn't that convenient, but couldn't you just be imposing that on history itself? You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I, I, I think there's, there's definitely need for a, a lot, a lot more work in, in that area to, to articulate it well. Um, and at the same time, I personally cannot help to feel that there's some kind of, uh, harmony there, some kind of, uh, analogy, because, I mean, you could pick up any history book 
and you would just you'll just read about how you know the empire disintegrated basically it couldn't be held together anymore and uh, it was constantly being harassed by all this external forces coming in and and somebody needed to step into this power vacuum and then uh, the church pretty much ended up kind of taking over and kind of uh, you know helping out and especially because they had uh, I believe they, they had a series of plagues at the same time and, and the church stepped in and really helped with that and kind of took a leadership role. And it created an interesting difference between the Western church and the Eastern church, because in the East, you still have the emperors for almost another millennium, you know? So yeah. even today, the Catholic church and the Orthodox church are very different Yeah, because there wasn't that sense of political leadership, political power that developed in the West. Yeah. So, I mean, the elements are there. They're not, they might not be as precise and they might not be as well articulated. And yes, I, I totally agree. Like you could, you do need some kind of way to interpret the history and, and some explanation, but uh, even that's the case, even though that's the case, I think, at least from the way I look at it, it seems like there's definitely some kind of uh, harmony there or some kind of connection there. It, it's almost like it's, it's too similar to be random. It's too similar to be, uh, just, just kind of happened to coincide or something. Right. If that makes sense, I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, what you're saying definitely, I I hear what you're saying, but I think it also that whole way of thinking about it, then the whole authentication piece, mm -hmm. I do feel like you're smuggling in a kind of epistemology that that's not necessarily from the Bible. That's like you've just got a more basic assumption about the relationship between reality and statements about reality right like in terms of in terms of what what would make a proposition true mm -hmm. like there's a question about that what makes a proposition true are there is there even such a thing as a proposition in philosophy these are kind of big questions and you have to have resolved those questions before you can answer the question does this historical event validate that biblical picture you know um do you think that's that it's different when it comes to the old testament prophecies like as you look at the New Testament and you look at Jesus first and then the apostles making a connection between the life of Jesus and the Old Testament, uh, is, is what I'm trying to say different than that? Or is that also a situation where they're kind of pulling things out of a hat that probably weren't necessarily there? Um, well, first of all, I'm not saying you're pulling things that aren't there. I'm just saying the way you're finding them to be there has presupposes an epistemology that may or may not come from the Bible. It's not, you know what I'm saying? So I'm just, I'm just saying that might disrupt the whole like sola scriptura thing that, that you, you might need an epistemology that comes before the Bible in order to even ask the question whether or not the two things correlate. But in terms of what the disciples were doing um, or like the, the New Testament authors were doing, uh, I think they were doing something very different from what you're doing, because I think they were authenticating the gospel by recourse to the Old Testament, but specifically through theology and not through prediction fulfillment. And the, the reason why you see that is that most of what, because like what you're describing, I think is more kind of prediction fulfillment in a way in Daniel. Although if you look at critical scholarship on apocalyptic literature, you didn't really get into this in your paper. You talked about preterite, futurist, and yeah. historicist views, but I mean, there's other views in critical scholarship beyond that, one of which would be that Daniel and other apocalyptic writers were never trying to predict anything either back then. Yeah, exactly. So 
so there's that whole piece of it too. But but that's the kind of the I, but you can kind of see it in Daniel, right? Even if even if you take a preterite view of it, it's like, yeah, let's say this thing was written sometime in the Maccabean period, and you can see that Daniel's mapping all these images onto the history that's going on at the time or whatever. So like you can see the prediction fulfillment kind of scheme. But that's not really what the gospel writers and other New Testament authors are doing. When they say something like, Jesus was born of a virgin and this fulfills the prophecy in Isaiah 7. And then you go back there and you read that and it's got nothing to do with Jesus, yeah. like historically speaking and prediction speaking. So then it's like, well, what are they doing then? They must be, it's like some other kind of theological yeah, uh, way of handling the text. They're, they're theologically handling the text in those situations. But in other situations, it seems that they're actually making some kind of connection. Like um, other, other passages in Isaiah, you know, where it talks about, uh, descriptions of, of the kind of life Jesus is going to live, um, uh, passages about his death and psalms and all these different things. It seems like, yeah, yeah, there they are they're, they are making theological arguments many times, but other times they're making connections to historical expectations that that uh, the nation had for for a while. Yeah, I think in some, I think there's probably a range of things there for sure. But but I think when, like, for instance, when it's at the end of Luke on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus explains to them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, uh, everything about him. Like, there's if he really went through the whole Bible, because I think you can. So the way that I do biblical theology, I think there's really not a page of the Old Testament that you can't find Jesus on. But it's not in a prediction fulfillment way. It's in a theological way. And so I think you can fit the whole thing around explaining who Jesus was in the gospel event. Um, and I think that's probably more the norm, actually. I think the other kind of like prediction fulfillment stuff is more like Jesus's miracles, that it's like little bits of like confirmation, but that by and large, the main sort of criteria for New Testament sort of understanding of the Old Testament in light of the Christ event seems to be more something like faith mm -hmm. and that's validated by i i think the explanatory power of the theology to explain the meaning and significance of jesus in a way that nothing else can explain it whether or not he did a particular historical thing that was predicted ahead of time i don't know i i think no i i know what you're saying and i think there, there's definitely um a lot to work work out in that in that area. Um, I do think that there's a certain expectation, though, in the Old Testament. I, I think one of the one of the difficulties for the Jewish faith after that was exactly the fact that they they had an expectation that wasn't fulfilled, or it just seemed like it was taking longer than expected. Uh, I mean, even as as the New Testament happens, they have a lot of wrong expectations, but they're still some expectation and they're getting it from from you know their historical faith they're expecting a messiah to come they're expecting something to change they're expecting all these different things um yeah so anyway the, I, I i i'm i'm sharing this because i think it's something that um you know when when you when you look at the bible it seems to point in this direction but i think there's definitely a lot of work that i and others probably need to do to, to make it a, a really solid thing. And I think there's an element of testable prediction here as well to where we don't actually need 
to, to take a position on this, we could say, okay, if we develop a certain methodology and the methodology is sound, we can try to determine what this is saying and where it's pointing. <clears throat> and if the predictions materialize, then we know we're on the right track. If they don't, then they don't. But I, I think there's, there's this predictive element there. And from an epistemic perspective, that has some value because somebody could listen to you. And at some point in the future, when something materializes, they might say, hey, uh, I yeah. think we're onto something. As long as the yeah. prediction is meaningful. If you're just saying like something random or arbitrary or, or, or so nondescript that people you can yeah. apply to anything, then it doesn't matter. Yeah, I think actually what you could do is, um, not you in particular, but just a, a, as people think about how to, to authenticate scripture theologically the way that you've kind of introduced. Because I, I think, I mean, I think you're onto something. I think you just got to take it one level deeper because you're, mm -hmm. you're focusing on the predictive element. But I think fundamentally the question you're really asking is, can, can I show that the Bible, and in particular theology mm -hmm. that is biblically derived, can I show that it's actually true? Yeah. Fundamentally. Yeah, and I think, and so that's what I mean about things like the explanatory power of Old Testament theology to explain the meaning and significance of Jesus. Yeah. Um, that's what I'm talking about. And I think there's a bit of that too. And actually that might even get you away from some of the controversy about prediction fulfillment stuff, because you could accommodate more views of apocalyptic literature because it could be true of events in the present even if it wasn't trying to predict them, it could still be true of them because it could be talking about geopolitical realities that are kind of endemic to human, you know, activity and things like that. And so it could still be true in that sense. And I think that's the deeper, more fundamental question. Does the Bible turn out to be true in, in yeah. that respect? I think um, part of this uh, plays into this cosmic conflict macro narrative that I was talking about, because there's this, um, there's this sense that there's a certain logic to history. Like basically, um, you know, we have a choice and the choice is to follow God or not to follow God. But if we don't follow God, God can, can tell us in advance where we're going to end up. Like there's, there's going to be a certain trajectory to history that's just going to be the, the inevitable result of taking things a certain way. So I think it kind of falls into that bigger picture. Uh, that, that I was bringing up. And also, like I said in the appendix, I don't, I think the purpose of this is not evidence in itself as much as just this, the, the little bit of extra evidence that you need to bring somebody who's on the sidelines to the point where they could actually take the other types of evidence seriously, like personal experience type of evidence, the evidence mm -hmm. from the Old Testament and from having this cohesive worldview and, and all these things you're talking about. Because sometimes you need that nudge. Like yeah. you need something to take the person to take the, the first few steps so they could move move on to the other lines of evidence, which I think are more, are stronger overall because they, you know, they affect, they, they affect more aspects of life, more aspects of your, of your existence. So they, they have more evidentiary power in the long run but um i think prophecy could play this other role on kind of like a beginning thing yeah um uh, uh, we got about 10 minutes left so i don't want to keep you too much longer but uh did, did you did you have any other thoughts that you wanted to bring up or no i think those are all the main things i had uh made a note of as uh, i was reading through it so Okay, again, just quickly, I was going to ask you if you had any thoughts on the on the last section. I, I know you, you kind of mentioned you're coming from the evangelical perspective, and I, I, 
I had asked somebody else to, to have a conversation with me coming from that perspective. And when they got to the final section of the, of the paper, they had a lot of issues with how I was dealing with science. So I don't know, did you have any thoughts on that or? Yeah, um, I actually, no, I, I liked it. I, um, I mean, I'm weird, you know, I, I'm an evangelical. I don't know how else to describe myself, but well, to begin with, I'm in Canada. So evangelical up here is not quite the same thing as it is. There's, there's nothing like, American like for instance, 81% of our evangelicals did not vote for Trump in 2016. But um, like, so it's, it's a different, it's a different kind of uh, evangelicalism up here for sure. Yeah, but okay. um, I actually found the way you were handling science really interesting and helpful. And I think, um, I think uh, charitable to the scientific worldview, you could say, and and rightly so. I, I think that that we too often set up a kind of um, sort of antithesis or like a kind of a conflict between science and the Bible that doesn't need to be there. Yeah. And I felt like what I enjoyed about what you had to say was that I've listened to lots of biblical scholars talk about we shouldn't have a conflict between science and the Bible and they explain all the ways you can understand the Bible so that it's not in conflict with science. And so they address it from the Bible side, mm -hmm. but I felt like you were addressing it from the philosophy of science side, which was really helpful because you showed the limitations of like, what is it that science is really actually supposed to do? Yeah. And, and that's great. And science should do that. And it shouldn't try to do things that it's, that it's not able to do or, you know, supposed to do. Yeah. And I, so yeah, I, I enjoyed that section quite a lot, actually. I, okay. I thought it was well written and I thought it was well, um, I felt like you had more expertise in that area, actually. It seemed like you had done more research or something like it just, it, it, it definitely seemed a lot more developed. So yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to talk, talk to some scientists soon and they're going to completely disagree with what you just said. And they're going to, they're going to tell well, me. Scientists might, but I think from a philosophical perspective, like in terms of philosophy of science, yeah. Yeah, they're gonna tell me I have no business. <laughs> yeah, scientists <laughs> don't like philosophers, though. That's not, that's the way it goes. Well, hey, I'm I'm glad to hear that. Uh, yeah, I think um, I don't know. We 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 need some work, some serious work done in the area of philosophy of science, and we need to do it differently than what has been done before in evangelical circles. Uh, and what what's frustrating to me is that we have this habit. As I would say, probably especially in American evangelicalism, where we sort of develop this microcosms where we, we live and function like a, some type of echo chambers. And we basically say like, okay, this is correct. And everybody who's outside of this, this sphere, uh, they're heretical, so we don't need to pay attention to them, but the rest of the world just ignores us. You know, and they just put us over here and they keep doing their thing and time passes and science progresses and they keep advancing and we're still stuck in this sort of imaginary world that we've built for ourselves. Yeah. We can't do that anymore if we're gonna have yeah. that kind of impact. Well, and I think the other thing that's important, and I think that's why I appreciated that you actually were dealing with it from the philosophy of science side and not just from the theology side, is um, I think people like Christians, even like fundamentalists who really are kind of like anti-science on one level, they can't escape like science in their life like for most other things, right? And so they end up having to do these really weird like hermeneutical stuff where they they try to sort of have their cake and eat it too. Yeah. And and so it's like on the one hand, they'll, they'll just accept as scientific statements, you know, something in the Bible that has to be a scientific fact, but then they'll take other things that 
a, a person using the same kind of hermeneutic could easily read the Bible, for instance, and and decide the earth has to be a disc on water with, you know, under a dome. Well, they're not going to accept that, you know, because it's like, no, like the science on, we sent a man to the moon or whatever. So it's like, we have to accept that science. And I think that the issue for a lot of Christians is that they don't have a good philosophy of science. And so they don't know like how to navigate that because it's like on one level, science is so compelling for many things that we think, oh, well, that doesn't threaten my faith. So it's fine. I can be totally scientifically coherent about this, this, and this. But then when science does something like, you know, whatever it is, paleontology or something, yeah. all of a sudden we have a big problem with the scientific method. And it's like, I think, so I think you're addressing that well. I think we need to, need to have a better appreciation for a philosophy of science so that we can see like, what's the relationship between putting someone on the moon and dating a dinosaur bone? Like, what is the relationship between those two things? And then what does that have to do with what the Bible says about things, you know, like, yeah, exactly. It's like, basically, we take the scientific methodology, and when it comes to something we don't like, we tweak it so that it, it could actually lead to the conclusions we want it to lead. And then we expect everybody else to accept that as science. But it's like, no, if you want to tweak the methodology, tweak it all across the board, then take the next 50 years doing science and showing the world that your methodology is better than, than the secular scientific methodology, and then we'll take this seriously. We're not just going to yeah. like tweak the methodology for one area that you disagree with type of thing, you know? Yeah. But I mean, the minute I say this stuff, there's a, a certain group of evangelicals that get really angry, really, when I talk about this stuff. And I don't know how to explain it differently, but. Well, I thought you navigated it pretty well because you stayed away from like the hot button scientific issues and just stayed on the philosophy of science, yeah. which I think is good. All right. Well. Yeah, <laughs> my time is up uh, as far as keeping you here. Uh, it's been an hour. And I, I, I really enjoy what you said. And I think, you know, you bring up some, some good points that need a lot of work. And honestly, I'm, I'm probably not equipped to address a lot of these. I just wanted to kind of set up a pathway or get a, get a, something going so that yeah. others can jump in and contribute that have a more specialty in those areas. But uh, Awesome. Yeah. Well, hey, I really appreciate you uh, just making this available to whoever, because I, I mean, I love this type of conversation. I love the topic. I love the, the philosophical part of it. You know, the real deep questions about how to do theology and, and how that all works. And uh, and I'm definitely I believe in biblical authority. I'll say that. So. Yeah. So I'm always interested in uh, in how we can do that well in our theological methods. So, yeah, I appreciate I appreciate being able to read your work and interact with you in person about it. It's awesome. So, all right. Well, thanks a lot. I'm going to stop the recording and then just hang on for, for a minute. Sounds good.